The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. What is a moonshot? Doesn't that have to do with uh, when, when we put a man on the moon in the 1960s and making achieving a dream of something that seems impossible? Sounds like a good explanation. Hi, and welcome back to Bloomberg Benchmark, a podcast about the global economy. It's Thursday, June 30. Spoiler alert, this is not a show about Brexit. There'll be plenty of time to talk about Brexit. We're going to deal with a more somber, more fundamental theme this week. But first, I'm Daniel Moss, Executive Editor for Global Economics. This week in the studio is Scott Landman. My colleague, Scott, tell us a little about yourself. Yeah, I've been an economics reporter and editor at Bloomberg for more than 10 years, with three of those years in Beijing editing our coverage of China's economy. Well, that's a very special economic skill to have, but our show today is special for another reason. We're participating in Bloomberg's Focus on Pharma, a month-long deep dive into the world of pharma and biotech that leverages the power of Bloomberg data, analytics, and editorial content across platforms to offer, hopefully, some pretty sharp insights. Scott, are you ready for some leveraging? I, I sure am. And let me tell you, the topic of our show today is the economics of cancer. As you know, Dan, I have a very personal interest in this issue. My sister, Cheryl, died last year at age 34, three years after being diagnosed with breast cancer. And in addition to that, my wife carries one of the BRCA genetic mutations, which greatly increases one's risk of breast cancer and ovarian cancer. She has actually undergone several preventive surgeries over the past year to reduce her risk because her aunt, grandmother, and great-grandmother all died of breast cancer at relatively young ages. And if that gene and treatment sound familiar, it's because it's similar to what Angelina Jolie did because she's also a carrier and her mother died of ovarian cancer. Scott, you've got a unique perspective. And, you know, I just want to say on behalf of the economics team, we appreciate the dignity with which you've conducted yourself through this ordeal. And whatever support you and Rachel need, you're going to continue to get we're going to talk about some stats regarding cancer, some of the main issues. We're going to talk about the vice president's famous moonshot, how it got that name, and how this fits into, well, the global economy. Cancer is actually it's the second leading cause of death in the United States, just a shade behind heart disease. And according to some measures, it's the number one cause of death in the entire world. Well, one study suggests that the total economic impact of premature death and disability from cancer worldwide is nearly $1 trillion, or put another way, 1.5% of global GDP. It's more than the economic toll from heart disease, and right now that's some GDP we could sure use. And speaking of our focus on pharma, worldwide spending on cancer drugs reached $107 billion in 2015 and may rise all the way to $178 billion by 2020. 
spending on cancer drugs in the United States is up 72% in the last five years. Well, President Obama earlier this year announced a cancer moonshot initiative led by Joe Biden, which aims to cut through some of the red tape and rivalries among drug companies with the idea of speeding up the pace of some of these advances. Before we get into that, first of all, why is it called the moonshot and what is a moonshot? Doesn't that have to do with uh, when when we put a man on the moon in the 1960s and making achieving a dream of something that seems impossible? Sounds like a good explanation. Uh, well, in fact, just this week, the vice president is hosting a National Cancer Moonshot Summit in Washington, and similar events are being held around the country. As you may know also, Biden lost his son to brain cancer last year. To help us sift through all this, we're joined on the phone by Dr. Lewis Weiner, director of the Georgetown Lombardi Comprehensive Cancer Center in Washington. He's also chairman of the Department of Oncology at Georgetown. Interesting fact, the center is actually named for legendary football coach Vince Lombardi, who was treated for cancer at the same. And Dr. Weiner is also a member of a Blue Ribbon Panel working group on the Cancer Moonshot Initiative, tasked with focusing on immunology and prevention. In the interest of full disclosure, Georgetown is where my wife underwent her preventive surgery last year. Uh, Also, our boss, the owner of this company, Mike Bloomberg, wrote an op-ed with Vice President Biden recently about how the Moonshot Initiative and public-private partnerships can help cure cancer, and he has donated substantial funds toward cancer research. Dr. Weiner, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here. Let's just start. Uh, first of all, Dr. Weiner, can you tell us about the state of cancer care and what kinds of advances are going on and why it's an exciting time right now? So I think it's important to understand that while obviously humans have been at war with cancer throughout human history, the formal war on cancer uh, was declared by President Nixon in 1971. And at that time, there were roughly a million new cases of cancer in the United States. And about half of those patients were succumbing to the disease at some point. So there was a generally 50% cure rate because surgery can be very effective to eliminate cancers at an early stage. Here we are now after 40 years of dedicated effort with intense federal uh, support over those years and dramatic expansion of the pharmaceutical industry to test new concepts and ideas that emanate from research. And roughly 1.6 million Americans get cancer every year. And that sounds bad at first uh, blush. However, it's important to remember that the population in the United States has increased dramatically since 1971, so that the rate of developing cancer is certainly no higher than it was back at that time. And about 585,000 people will die of cancer this year. So the number of cancers has increased by more than 50%, and the death rate has remained relatively constant, suggests, or has actually decreased dramatically, forgive me, so that roughly two out of three, almost, patients with cancer are now cured. Now, that sounds like modest progress, but when you think about it in terms of the number of lives that have been saved on a yearly basis because of advances in cancer research and care, it's several hundred thousand Americans a year who are being cured of a disease that would have likely taken their lives only 40 years ago. Now, the other exciting news in that regard is that the death rate from cancer has reduced every single year since 1990, again, a reflection of advances in uh, research, education, and care. 
And we are very pleased to have been a part of these great advances, but we obviously have quite a bit of work left to do. And what's happening in the recent few years has really been extraordinary in terms of a, a deepening understanding of what causes cancer and a better understanding as well of what some of the molecular targets might be that we want to attack in cancers in order to uh, improve treatments and ultimately cure patients. Now, that's the U.S. picture, Doctor. Has the death rate declined similarly outside the United States? The death rates around, you know, I don't know those numbers as well as I do for the United States. I think that the world is a very large place. And I think that in uh, the more developed countries, such as Western Europe and Japan, it's quite likely that we're seeing similar improvements in outcome because those areas of the world have access to sophisticated uh, care and uh, can benefit because they are wealthy enough societies to benefit from the advances with new therapies that are being developed. The rest of the world, it's not such an easy situation. uh, And I believe that especially as uh, poverty continues, yet the poverty is lessened to the point where folks can live longer because they're not dying of infectious diseases, for example, the cancer burden increases and there's inadequate ability to actually treat those people properly. So the cancer burden around the world is, is still quite enormous and uh, is not satisfactorily addressed by current uh, strategies. Now, that leads into a topic that we often talk about in our economic coverage, which is the uh, widening gap, uh, the, the inequality gap, uh, wealth gap throughout the world. Uh, it sounds like what you're talking about is almost like a cancer care gap between the wealthier societies and the poor societies. Is that something that's happening or is likely to happen as the cost of these new treatments goes up? So I'm not an expert on that specific area, but it is my um, perspective and, 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 uh, and belief based upon what I have read and heard and discussed that the availability of sophisticated therapies, and even basic, even fairly basic screening strategies uh, is, is so much better in, in the developed world that the gap in care between um, uh, the wealthier societies and the less wealthy societies is, if anything, going to grow as we develop more exciting and effective therapies uh, for cancer therapy, uh, for cancer treatment that are really predicated on the assumption that the society has enough resource to pay for it. You spoke a few minutes ago about the declining death rate here in the United States, and I'm wondering whether to get it significantly lower than where it is here, we need to jump a wall. That's a very interesting question. The, the death rates are declining. They've been declining on a, at a relatively... Um, even slope over the last uh, 20 years. We all would like to see those rates drop in a more precipitous way. And the way to do that is by addressing several uh, different areas. The first of those areas is to assure uh, uniform access of of quality care and uh, access to transformative therapies for all people, irrespective of their uh, uh, economic uh, or, or social uh, conditions. And that, of course, is an ongoing uh, a challenge, but I think it's one that we're very mindful of. The second is to continue to invest in um, transformative research 
so that we can, in fact, um, continue to make the kinds of discoveries that are going to change uh, the trajectory uh, of cures. And I'm going to give you an example of that. So one of the most ex exciting new areas of cancer research and care is in the area of immunotherapy, which can be described as treating the body's immune system so the immune system can go ahead and treat the cancer. And it's been demonstrated that cancers erect a variety of protective walls to prevent the immune system from attacking them. And if we can identify what those particular mechanisms are in any in given individual and attack those defenses very specifically, you can break them down. And in fact, the immune system can then eliminate the person's cancer. And so there have been extraordinary um, clinical uh, benefits for people with advanced melanomas and many other cancers with so-called checkpoint antibodies developed by a number of pharmaceutical companies based in the United States. And these treatments have the capacity to cure people with advanced metastatic cancers that were otherwise going to kill them very, very rapidly. So this has really been a, a, like an electric shock in our field in terms of being able to um, excite uh, investigators and patients and doctors and really give us a sense of what the future could look like. This is all the result of very painstaking research. And I might add, it was research that many people didn't think was going to be productive for many, many years. And it was only because enough money had been placed into the research and development pipelines, both within academia and in pharma, that these kinds of uh, transformative advances were possible. So I, I think that the, the greatest challenges we have, the wall that needs to be jumped. And this is where what we're doing today is a, perhaps a little bit different from the moonshot initiatives of the 1960s, where it was necessary to put a man on the moon, is that in that latter circumstance, we had the technology, we knew how to build rockets, we basically knew what had to be done to get somebody on the moon, and it was just a huge amount of work to make it happen. In the area of cancer research and care, we have some of the tools we need to be able to make transformative advances. And in fact, great progress is being made, but there's still additional knowledge that needs to be created in order to be able to really take us where we want to go. And that's going to require continued investment. Now, now that sounds really exciting, doctor. Now, how, how are we going to pay for these advances? You talk about funding for research, mm -hmm. but there's also the cost on the other end to the patients. How are patients going to pay for it? How is uh, our Medicare system going to keep paying for these kinds of right. treatments? Are, are patients able to pay for these treatments now? Are you seeing any strains yet at Georgetown in terms of insurance or Medicare not covering these kinds of new treatments that doctors are recommending? So it's a very good question and a very complicated question, obviously. And I'm going to try and break it down into several different components, if I might, if I could. Firstly, let's remember that the as as was mentioned earlier, the cost of cancer to the society, in terms of lost wages, lost productivity, destruction of family family structures, is just unimaginably high around the world. And we have to always think about the costs in that context. Remember that in the United States, uh, in the next two days, more than 3,000 people will die of cancer. That is an unacceptable rate of death. It is, if this was happening from any other cause, 
I think that uh, the American people would be justly outraged and would demand action, say, what do we need to do to fix this and fix it more rapidly? We certainly do that in many other spheres when it involves national security, for example. So I, I think that when we talk about how expensive cancer care is, uh, let's also remember how expensive cancer is. Secondly, I think it's important to recognize that when you have treatments that really work well, the ultimate cost is going to be less all around. I think one of the real challenges we face in the field of cancer care and the cost of cancer care is we've had a, a number of uh, expensive treatments that were approved that created marginal benefits for patients with cancer. And that be, makes the, the ultimate cost of cancer very large and perhaps, not, and perhaps it's not as cost effective as it should be. But as we develop more effective therapies and as we develop additional disciplines that allow us to only use those treatments that are likely to have major benefits to our patients, I think that we will find that treatments are in fact not only affordable but desirable because it benefits society. Thirdly, with respect to how insurance companies are dealing with, um, with, with these costs at this point in time, I would say that when we are using these agents for their approved indications in patients who have the, the kind of cancer where these treatments have been demonstrated to be effective, I have not run into any major challenges. Certainly the insurance companies, uh, which are always looking to control their, their expenditures, are, are examining these requests uh, quite carefully and are likely to deny uh, requests if, they're, if these are based upon physicians' intuition or belief and not supported by data. But that's perhaps not that inappropriate. <laughs> I, I think that as we move forward, though, we're going to be dealing with some real big challenges because, for example, the drugs targeting one of these immune checkpoints, uh, which can attack either the PD-1 or PDL1 immune checkpoint molecules, we find that they, these drugs can work in maybe 25 different cancers, but they don't work in every patient with each of these 25 cancers. They work in some of the patients with each of these 25 cancers. So you can imagine there will be some significant challenges when thinking who should be treated with these drugs and how are we going to be able to pay for it when we know that not everybody with a particular disease, as we currently understand it, is going to benefit from these expensive therapies. And that's where additional research is absolutely necessary so that we can, in fact, begin to hone in on the subpopulations of patients with a particular cancer who might benefit from a particular expensive therapy. So the answer to your question is it's complicated. Dr. Weiner, thank you so much for sharing your perspective with us. And complicated though it may be, it's vitally important and you've addressed some big themes here. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Scott, that was quite a tour de force. And, you know, it's just a reminder that economics is a personal thing. It's not just GDP. It's not just non-farm payrolls. It's not just an FOMC decision once every six weeks. Right. And there's more dimensions to the economy than just these kinds of things that we think about, about stimulus and central banks and jobs, that there's there's six billion people and each of them have uh, have a risk of cancer. They can get disease. They can die. And that affects their productive capacity in the world, but also their personal connection to their loved ones and everyone else. 
it makes me wonder whether the economics profession and those of us who write about it perhaps sometimes get too focused on the stats and not enough attention is paid to the human equation which underlays it all. I think that that's a good point, Dan. And, you know, we do pay attention. We try to pay attention to the human equation here at Bloomberg. Uh, but there's also value in taking a step back and figuring out the big picture. And sometimes one way to understand cancer is to focus on the big picture and to see these kinds of trends and to figure out, all right, where should we put this money and how are we going to pay for it? Because that's the way that our society is going to get better over time. Well, I want to thank you for your candor here on the show. I know some of this hasn't been easy for you and, you know, continued Godspeed to you and Rachel and to the journey that your family walks on. Thank you for your support, Dan. I really appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for listening to us on Bloomberg Benchmark. We'll be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher and Google Play. Why are there take just a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. Scott's on Twitter at, wait for it, Scott Landman. That's all it is. Spell it for us. S-C-O-T-T-L-A-N-M-A-N. You can get me at, at Daniel Moss DC. Aki and Tori will be back with us next week. See you then. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.